0: Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water podcast. My name is Sam kasten Smith, and joining me today is Will. Good afternoon, Sam. Good afternoon. Telling everybody that we're, in, we're usually like we've been all over the place when we record morning, afternoon. It just evening. keeps getting later and later. <laughs> yeah, this and is later. The procrastinating, trying to fit this into our schedule. Uh, but anyway, today we're continuing our study in Exodus, specifically doing Exodus chapter nineteen. And so we're on the other side of the Red Sea. You remember, Red Sea was chapter 14. And since then, we've seen God's faithfulness to a group of grumbling people that are constantly asking why in the world God has brought them out of Egypt. Even though this is the place of slavery, you know, there they had pots of meat and they had their bread and they were taken care of and they had a place to stay. And now God has promised them all this freedom and wonderful stuff, but they are being taken further and further and further into a desert, a wilderness, this desolate place, which for any human being is going to make them question like, really, God, you, you called me to follow you to come out of this place? Well, yeah, I was enslaved there, but at least there was food. At least there was a river and green stuff and beauty and you've brought me out into this place that is utterly desolate, and there's a reason why God does that. In fact, the the place that he brings them is, is known by two different names. You have Horeb and Sinai. It's talking about the same place, but the name Horeb literally means desolate. <laughs> like, So God is saying, come follow me, and then leads them to a place that's utterly desolate. It's named desolate. And that begs the question, like, why? And I think for a lot of us, Will, as we we look at this passage of Scripture, the natural question is, like, why would a good God lead you, even if it's out of slavery, lead you to a place that's desolate? What do you think?
1: It's really hard to get out of that cycle of grumbling when your conditions don't change. And that's kind of how I've been thinking about it with them. Like, it's so hard to remain faithful a lot of the times when we're addicted to the comfort, when we're addicted to the pleasures of it all, and we think, oh, that's what God should be giving me. There's just a, and this is true in my life too, there's real pride and arrogance that says, oh no, I I deserve this, this, and this, and how could God be good and faithful when it doesn't seem to me like I'm getting this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly where they're at. And we've talked about this, I mean, Exodus obviously pushes us towards it, but like how you respond to the wilderness is, how you'll respond to God. Like Moses in his wilderness, he had to work through some things. He had to go through some, but he got out of the other side. And now we're looking at this picture and being like, okay, are these guys going to figure it out and actually trust God for God, Mm -hmm. not trust God just as the cosmic vending machine that they really want.
0: Yeah. And that's how, I mean, all of us have that element to us, but it's, it's, it's interesting when you go through scripture, when you find where God brings his people through the most formative stages of their life, it's never when everything's being provided mm-hmm. and everything is going well. You know, I was listening to a sermon on Joseph a couple of days ago and it was like, you know, he goes from, and his youth being this very arrogant, you know, you guys are going to bow down to me, telling on his brothers, you know, if he had been left without any kind of major episode in his life, who knows where that ego and arrogance would have grown to and yet he spends, you know, whatever, 17 years in slavery, in a pit, in a dungeon, and it so softens him and he humbles him, and it makes him into this really wonderful man. And you think of Jesus, you know, when he spent time alone with God, he goes to the place where everything is stripped away. And when Elijah has his very formative conversation with God, it's going to be on Mount Sinai again. It's when everything else is stripped away. And I think that God, a lot of times when we're going, I just need this comfort or I need that comfort or just throw me a bone, God, please, anything that can that can give me some level of comfort, it's really easy to say, man, God must be cruel if he's just leading us further, 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 further away from Egypt, further away from the Greenlands to end to this desolation. Like, is, is he being cruel? And the reality is, is it's when all that other stuff is stripped away that God is trying to to lead you to a place where you understand that he's enough. That's good. You know, he, he by himself, there's nothing else here to entertain you. You have to, you have to rely on him entirely for your daily provision. you got to re- rely on him for protection. You've got to rely on him for the water. You've got to rely on him for everything. And yet he wants you to realize, hey, I'm enough. All the other distractions are taken away.
1: Yeah, there's that great Charles Spurgeon quote that says, I've learned to kiss the wave that slams me into the rock of ages. <laughs> That's cool.
0: I love that. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. You know, I just got back from sabbatical and one of the hardest things to do on sabbatical, you know, they say you kind of strip all the normal things that you do out of your life. And I I think I may have mentioned this before, but that's really hard because you're you want to go to whatever distractions can take your mind away Mm. from the more painful things that you need to wrestle through. But when all the distractions are away, so one of the trips that I took in isolation is I went up to Eastern Kentucky and started walking around the Daniel Boone National Forest. Why are you Why are you laughing at that?
1: Because <laughs> what Sam didn't know is he was sending selfies to Laura and then she would show me those and it was just Sam in the forest,
0: <laughs> just <laughs> selfie away. And I was like, this is awesome. Terrified of bears, zero survival skills. <laughs> like, yeah. But I will tell you this, that when you're out in the wilderness and you have no internet signal and you can't do your job and it's just you and a Bible and... And I I did have, you know, AirPods or whatever to listen to music as I was walking around because I didn't want to hear things moving around in the forest. Total fear. Like at first I was just walking, but then I would hear like branches rustling. And I was like, that's a bear. It's a big bear. I know that's a bear. (laughs) So eventually I just, I had to put on the music so that if the bear was coming, I wouldn't know until it was too late. The stress of the bear was worrying me more. But anyway, just being out there with absolutely nothing to do but think, pray, wrestle. Very difficult, but it's where during sabbatical I had the best moments with God. Um, wrestling through Psalm 16 and thinking of all the reasons I have for gratitude that, you know, you set my boundaries in pleasant places and just really. but then not being able to be distracted from that. Like it's not like someone's banging on the door or, my phone dings. The next moment to take my thoughts away. It's like in the de- in the desolate wilderness. There's nothing else for you to do, but consider yourself and to consider your relationship with God. Like there's nothing else to do. So anyway, that's going to be where God is taking them today in chapter 19. So it starts in verse one, on the third new moon. That's another way of saying. And the third month, right? So it's the lunar cycle. The Hebrew calendar was after the lunar calendar. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And so just as another Hebrew word, like so Horeb is a name that means desolate. And so you can kind of gain some image in your head of like desolate, desert, wilderness, nothing there. Sinai comes from a Hebrew root, that is Sinek it's, and it literally means like a thorn bush or a a shrub with thorns on it. And so this is, this is not pleasant. So it's like the one curse that God gave a physical manifestation in Genesis three, when he says, Hey, you're going to have to sweat for your bread. You know, you're going to return to the dust, but he says, you're going to work and the ground is going to rebel against you and it's going to grow thorns. And so it's not only that he's brought them into the desert." But the only thing that we know about this location outside of God's miraculous provision that's there is thorn bushes. So it's like a reminder of the fall. Even the stuff that does grow here is a curse. Like this is this is not God taking them to paradise. Quite the opposite. It says they set out from Rephidim. We remember that from the last couple of chapters. And they came to the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. So it's like God says, this is where we're going to park, <laughs> you know, which couldn't have been good, but this is what God had promised to Moses way back in Genesis 3 when he says, you know, this is going to be the sign. I am going to lead you and all the people, and you're going to come back here to this mountain. So this is the holy mountain where Moses first encountered God in a burning bush. And if you remember, that burning bush was uh, Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's sermon. Stephen clarifies that it was a burning thorn bush. Mm-hmm. And there's so much to pull from that. Like God comes and dwells in this fire that's not quenching a thorn bush. And we talked about the symbolism of that. Like God could have come in any sort of organic life. He, he could have made a redwood grow or a sequoia or a mighty oak or a cypress or, or some kind of tree that has this majestic feel about it. And he chooses like the worst. Like that, there's no plant life that's more annoying than just a thorn bush and what does god do he comes and dwells in the lowest Mm -hmm. and the cursed and yet when he dwells in the midst of it it cannot be consumed and and there's a there's a nod toward grace in that i think and that god comes and dwells in really screwed up people but when god dwells in you you cannot be consumed by the flames it's it's a nod toward god's mercy when he dwells in something And so this is a special place for Moses. This is where God first called him. And now he's led him right back to this location and the wilderness of the desolate place where thorn bushes grow. And this is where they're setting up camp. And it's like God says, I want them to also experience a pretty supernatural meeting with me. And that's what this chapter is going to be about.
1: And he could have some real mixed feelings about this place because Moses wasn't jazzed to get that call. Yeah, correct. You know, you're in this miraculous supernatural event. And not only did you not want to go at first, but on the other side of all the triumph is just more hate and anger and more just mm-hmm. like all of this dissent is because I got that call at the burning bush and here I am again. What's next for me? Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah. This would have been a total place where it's a mixed bag for Moses because one, he his objections are like, you know, you want me to go up against Pharaoh? Well, God has proven that he's faithful. He actually led Moses to triumph against Pharaoh. So in a lot of ways, it's like, hey, God, like you really came through. You are so faithful to your promise against insurmountable odds. My goodness, you you carried the day. But then Moses' other stuff, like he was rejected by these people. He doesn't want to get thrown back into that mix. He's still heartbroken and all that stuff in all likelihood. And and that part hasn't gone away. Like they like you're talking about, they're still <laughs> grumbling and angry at him and he, according to him fearing that he's going to be stoned by these people like so this bag, this mixed bag of blessing and man this this call into ministry has not been all sunshine and roses. Mm-hmm. He's showing back up to the place of his calling, which I God does that a lot. You know, it's like Peter you know, Peter gets called on the sea when he's fishing and they catch the great amount of fish and everything else. And that's when Peter's like, oh my goodness, this is the Lord. And he bows down and says, depart from me from my, for I'm a sinful man, which, you know, here we go again. That's interesting that this call into ministry is like, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. But God doesn't say, yeah, like, well, you're right. You are a sinful man. I'll use someone else. He doubles down and calls Peter into ministry. But at the end, you know, where Peter's restored, it's the same story again, which is interesting, which is, he takes him to the sea of Galilee again. He's walking on the shoreline and the people are like, "Oh my goodness, there's a look at that guy." And he asks, "Have you caught any fish?" And they're like, "We have we've been out here all night. We haven't caught anything," which is the same thing that happened at their call. But when the, when Jesus says, "Drop your nets," they catch this huge fish again, and they're like, "It's the Lord." And Peter races to the Lord, and even though he just denied him 3 times, he's restored. And it's interesting that God takes people back to where he first called them Mm -hmm. and restores them again. And I feel like that's some of what he's doing with Moses here. Like he's going to validate Moses and give Moses at this place, a special privilege where he's about to call him up on Mount Sinai to receive the covenant of the law. He's really setting Moses apart uh, in the same place where he first called him, which is kind of cool. So it says they're camping at this mountain and it says, while Moses went up to God, The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a royal nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And there's a lot in that statement. But the first one is, this, this doesn't feel like the gospel. Like, listen to what God says. He says.
1: Oh, because it leads with obedience?
0: Yeah. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the people's. Well, what's the reality? They don't do any of this stuff. They're going to mess it up. They're going to worship golden calves. People are constantly falling into sin. And yet the condition, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, doesn't seem to hold because God still treats them like his treasured possession among all the peoples. And so this gets back to like you have two different covenants. And let's pause for a moment here. Because this can get really confusing, and you have people who come up with crazy, strained theologies to try to make sense of this. Well, God changed his mind and dealt with people certain in a certain way at this point, then changed his mind, and then did a 180, and then it's the law, and then he goes back to grace. And the answer is no. Like That's not what's going on here. Because when God gives this promise, he's already made the covenant of grace. Mm. Going back to Genesis 3, remember that? where he says, you know, there's going to be enmity between the serpent and the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the snake, putting an end to his tyranny of sin and death. Then to Abraham, it's, you know, all people's on earth are going to be blessed through your seed, meaning Jesus, and he repeats that to Isaac and he repeats it to Jacob, and then he he zeroes down when he gets to Judah and all of these people, it's been there's a covenant of grace and that's unilateral. Right, It's a one-way promise because he doesn't say to Abraham, if you obey, then all nations of the world are going to be blessed. He's telling Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, all these people with the covenant of grace prior to this point, I am going to save humanity, period. Regardless of what you do, I'm going to save humanity. When you get to Sinai, it is the first time that you find tension, right? Because what is the, what's Abraham's salvation based on? Well, the promise, period. Okay, Abraham, he screws up all over the place. God's promise never wavers. But then you get here and God has thrown an intentional wrench into the, the system, right? He says, okay, now your blessing is going to be conditional upon whether or not you are righteous, I need perfect obedience from you if you're going to be my treasured possession. So what's the solution? You feel this tension come along where it's like God saying, I'm gonna keep my promise no matter what. And then he throws a if then statement. If you keep my commands, then I will treat you this way. But God's never gone back on the covenant of grace and he will never go back on this covenant of the law. How is this tension resolved? Well, Jesus, Jesus, right? There's a reason why when Jesus comes, his whole life story is almost a retelling of Exodus. And so, like, you think about this. When when you have the birth of Moses, right, who's going to be the leader that brings them out, it's a supernatural thing. Like, everybody else is dying. He's born, and then he's put on a river, and you have this maniacal tyrant who's trying to kill all of the baby boys of Egypt, right, Pharaoh. Well, you get to Jesus's life and you have a baby born. And what is Herod doing? Killing babies. I want all the baby boys dead, right? And they're miraculously survived. Moses is going to flee Egypt. Jesus flees to Egypt. You get both of them that go up on a mountain to give teaching with the authority of God. You have both of them that are going to... Moses has the 12 tribes that he you know, beckons out. You have Jesus that's going to have the 12 apostles. You have... Jesus that goes in the wilderness and fasts for 40 days. Moses goes on the mountain and fasts for 40 days. You've got all of these similarities. And what it's telling you is Jesus is picking up the historical narrative. And he's saying where Moses and the Israelites failed. That's the reason why their stories are sovereignly dictated in a way that is echoing each other. But it's telling you the Israelites and Moses failed this covenant. The covenant of the law. And so now everything is messed up. God kept his end. We did not keep ours. So God is so good that when he's born, he he walks the story of Israel and he keeps it all perfectly. Where they failed in the wilderness, he withstands the temptation in the wilderness and he carries this. He's gonna have a far better baptism. He's gonna all those things Jesus does perfectly. Why? Because he gives the obedience so that we then are deemed righteous in the sight of God. And by grace alone, when we hear this, this particular covenant, when it says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, what's our response to God? I mean, if he were to put you up onto the stand on your, your trial on judgment day and says, well, you know, the covenant was if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, have you will? I have not right but jesus has and he's given me his perfection Mm -hmm. he has clothed me with the fact that he has kept that covenant perfectly and so now the covenant of grace has no disruption there's no there's no what's the word obstacle in front of the covenant of grace because in god's sight we have kept the law does that make sense yeah like it but it's pretty amazing and so it, it talks about, I've bore you up on eagle's wings. And I was watching a video before we came here of a new baby eagle learning to fly. <laughs> okay. Because like, what they'll do is they'll latch on to the mother's back. Like, and, and when they fly, it's like they're getting a, a feeling of what it's like, like to fly. Like dragons. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. How to train <laughs> your dragon. But as, so then the little baby bird comes off, but the mother is like swooping underneath just Mm. in case something goes wrong. Like there's a cushion. It's pretty fascinating to watch. Pretty cool. And they'll sit there and soar around and you watch the mother and the mother will be just like so perfectly peaceful. And the baby is, you know, flapping around and its Mm -hmm. wings are insecure. But right underneath flying, this mother is just mimicking everything to make sure That they're there, and there's that's just a cool picture that God is like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you fly, but I'm right there. Like there's no chance that I'm gonna let you be destroyed, right? And that's the heart of God. But I think my favorite. There's two more points in this little passage. (laughs) You know these these couple of verses. But let just sit on the fact that when God looks at His church, His people. How does he refer to us here? He says, you shall be my treasured possession. Hmm. That means that of everything that God has, owns, all of his abilities, anything that he could put on the table, his treasured possession is his church, his people. There's nothing of more value to him than you.
1: And we'd settle with just being a possession, right? <laughs> like left in the garage at best. You're know? yeah, right. So the fact that any elevation not on our own accord is amazing.
0: Mm-hmm. And that—that's really like I have a, such a hard time genuinely, deep in my soul, believing that. Yeah. Not just for the sake of the church, because you know I'm a pastor and I've I I live on planet Earth. <laughs> I I see how destructive and corrupt and ugly the church can be at points. I see pastors fall and i see congregants mistreat people and you know the church can be a very ugly place and yet it's not remember it's not if then when god looks at us he sees the righteousness of christ and even though we're sinners like nothing gets in the way of the fact that we are absolutely precious in his sight and sometimes i can get really mad at the church really mad at the church like capital c and all of its failures and warts. And yet, there's a humbling thing that when it's like, okay, Sam, like you're no angel either. You know, the Lord has forgiven you of so much. And when he looks at his church, there's nothing more precious to him than his church. So you'd better be careful how you talk about it, mm. which is hard because I think today I have, <laughs> met, you know, mentioned different institutions that I'm frustrated with. But that's the heart of God. You know, I used to use this illustration with my students probably when you were enough to remember. back in the day. Yeah, we'll see. But here's what it was. If I was walking with Laura down Federal Highway and one of my students came by and spit in my face, right, back in the day, I'd be really angry there would be big consequences for that student. It would not go well. But now repeat that same situation. Laura and I are walking down Federal Highway and one of my students comes by. You're about to punch a kid? (laughs) And spits in Laura's face. Big difference, right? Which one is going to make me more upset? Hopefully, spit in Laura's face. For sure. Like, they might be thrown into traffic if they did that to Laura. Like, it it would be really a different category. And that's why when you see Jesus, he can take the personal insults, and you don't see him get riled up. But when he sees the abuse of his people or his church, that's when he'll start flipping tables. Mm. Jesus, the Lord, does not like when people come and abuse his own. And so when he says, you are my treasured possession, we need to be really careful to see that when we treat other brothers and sisters, that the Lord loves them. And we need to be really, really careful not to mistreat them. Even if it's not just for our own sake, but he loves them. Therefore, we should too.
1: Yeah, in the modern reading that just we get to, it's become such a personal faith, which I think it is. But again, going through the book of Exodus, it's a good reminder that Jesus talks about us as people a lot, like his church, his people, all of Israel's getting this together. It's not just like, I do believe I'm a treasured possession of God, but mm-hmm. it's to think about like you said, like there's a bigger mindset to that. I can't feel like I'm a solo knight in this journey. But you're a
0: treasured possession because you're part of the bride. Yeah. You know, he doesn't see you purely in isolation. You know, he sees you as part of the bride that he's purchased. And and you see that the next part of that that couple of verses that I just think is so amazing is he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so for, for granted, this, he's setting apart Israel to be his own kingdom. It's 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 not a democracy. It's not a republic. It's not even a traditional monarchy. Like he is going to reign as king. It's a it, it is. He's creating a theocracy, which are really really dangerous because the fallen nature of man stinks, and we we'd never want to pursue that. And and the Bible teaches us that as it goes through the rest of Scripture. But this identity Peter picks up in the New Testament and reaffirms that we are a royal priesthood even now. Mm. Apart from the theocracy and wherever we are, whatever kind of government we live in, we are still a royal nation of priests because our in our kingdom, by the way, is not of this world like it would have been for them back then when Israel was being established as a nation. Now we are a royal priesthood of a kingdom not of this world, which means you are royal emissaries of a kingdom that exists forever, that has a king. You're an ambassador that has been sent from that realm with authority to fight his battles and to do his bidding and to to be his mouthpiece in a prophetic and kingly way in this world, that is a high calling. And you're also the priesthood, which means what? What is a priest's primary job? It's more on the, go ahead. Like to mediate the relationship between God and the people? Bam, it's mediating. It's always to say, hey, but do you know that there's a God in heaven who loves you? Do you know that there's mercy available for you? Do you know that there is healing for this situation? Do you know that you worship a God with resurrection power? It's it's all on the, more, the side of mercy that's bringing mm. broken people into the presence of a healing God. And so back in the world, and even to this day, you always saw the royal offices, the kingly offices that were separated from the priestly offices, right? Even today, we would say separation of church and state or something like that. You never wanted the church and the kingly to get intermingled, but in the kingdom of heaven, which is, reminder, not of this world, you occupy both offices. All three, prophet, priest, and king, God calls you to those offices for the sake of his kingdom here in this world. How do you feel about that?
1: complex sometimes because it's so scary when you think about it oftentimes, but then it's also the safest Mm -hmm. because it's confirmed by God. And he's the one saying all of this, like I'm going to make all of this happen. Mm -hmm. Which of those three roles, kingly prophetic
0: priestly, because he's, he's got all these here, you know, he's about to lay down the law to them and say, this is the law. It's my design for humanity. Right? So there's a prophetic element where he's giving the word of God that they're to live by. And he's telling them you're a kingdom God of priests, a holy nation. So he's combining all those elements here. Which of those is the most challenging for you to be a reflection of his kingly role, prophetic role, or priestly role?
1: I think we've talked a lot about this off mic, but the prophetic role in this current day and age, Mm -hmm. because it seems like we don't have any, it seems like anything you say is a fear of cancellation or even minor biblical truth, not minor, biblical truth is never minor, but ones that yeah 20 years ago nobody would blink an eye at Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're done
0: yeah like you're out cancel culture coming
1: yeah and so i think that one's the hardest not just to do it but how to do it well Mm -hmm. and even just the hardest emotionally because no prophet is ever liked Mm -hmm. again jesus says no prophet will be loved in his hometown and you're like (laughs) ah don't sign me up for that one yeah oh boy get me out of that yeah and now in a globalized world that's you can go across nations with your thoughts, and so it's not just yeah. oh, yeah, John, is- John down the streets hating my name, but it's but it's that's a scary role to play in 2023.
0: Yeah, it is. You know, and the church tends to vacillate. This is just an observation. So we're we're off on a rabbit trail right now, but the church tends to vacillate between the two. Like you, you'll have eras where the church is very at errors to the prophetic side and and have minimal role in the priestly side. Mm-hmm. And then it flips, and usually the conservative side of the spectrum loves the prophetic. Like, here is the truth. I'm I'm going to bring the law down, and I'm going to bring worldview elements down. And and by the way, all of that's very necessary. And that's my bent, by the way. And typically, when the church drifts off into the errors of liberalism, it's like you know we're not going to be so hard on the the truth stuff, and and the law, and the scriptures, and holding to what they say, we just want to love people. We want to serve people. We want to we want to take care of the homeless, and we want to do all those things. And both of them are 100% absolutely necessary, but they are really difficult to hold in, in tandem because to come to somebody and to say, I love you, and I'm not going to let you fall between the cracks, and I'm going to make sure that you're clothed and that you have all that you need, and oh, by the way your life right now is out of line with God's calling. Hmm. It seems like it's contradictory, right? Like in our culture, we would say, oh, it's really loving for you to give all the physical needs and to take care of them, which is kind of the priestly element and to encourage them and try to heal their wounds. But our culture would look at the prophetic side of that where it's coming along and saying, oh, you're in you're in sexual relationships with four different people right now. Yeah, you you need to stop that. You know, if you're if you're submitting to the will of God, like this is not good for your life. This is not God's design. It's going to bring more hurt on you. We would say mm, that didn't feel so loving. Mm. And it's man that is so loving. And we have forgotten how to see the prophetic role as the genuine compassion and love of God to come to a world and say, "Hey, I have a better design for you," and down this road is only pain, right? And so, what I what I love is when you can find a church because they're it, it seems like we either are super prophetic and anemic on priestly side of and compassion and all that, or you find a church that is tremendously you know has all the compassion rolls down, but they don't believe anything anymore. Mm. And holding those two in tension and doing both is what the church is called to.
1: Yeah, and it seems, as you were talking, it seems like the problem is almost when we use the prophetic role and the priestly role to get to the kingly role. Mm-hmm. Like, good. we, we yeah. only use the prophetic because one day we want to be in charge and the moral majority is back again, and yep. that's when it gets, or the we want to love people so well they'll eventually put us in charge because we've allowed things and just done whatever. <sighs> That's really insightful. Which is interesting when like, oh, the goal is to have three of them, like you said, like, like tripartite mm-hmm. running together yeah. and check some balances. That's a lot of government language in this, but yeah. similar. No, I hear you.
0: Yeah. Because ultimately you want them to
1: exalt the true king. Yeah. To be part of the kingdom of God, not part right. of whatever kingdom I'm trying to build. Yeah. You're a priest for the glory of God. You're a prophet for
0: the glory of God. And anytime you use those roles for the glory of Sam or will or a political party you're missing it you're failing in those roles they're really hard to hold in tandem they really are I can it's easily understandable how the church errors in different directions yeah. all the time but God's calling us to hold all three <laughs> in all together and to do them and so it's mindful it's really good every once in a while to pull back and to say yeah how do how are we doing as a church and the priestly the prophetic for the sake of the kingdom's glory.
1: Yeah. Cause it's really a wisdom conversation. Like how do mm-hmm. I live skillfully in this world, trying yeah, to achieve the mission of God's and wisdom issues are really difficult. That's why God gives us a lot of <laughs> wisdom literature to try to like yeah. hone in on it.
0: Really good. All right. Well that, that felt like a good rabbit trail. I like that. So verse seven continuing on. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay. Yeah. Womp, womp. We'll do for the next three seconds until we totally botch it. And they're going to repeat that three times, which when we get to the next chapter, we'll see the significance of that. Like they, but they're like totally confident. Yep, we're in. We got all that. Yeah, we do that. No problem. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. And so the Lord is like, he wants them to understand that this isn't just any normal encounter. Like you need to go consecrate yourself. You need to consider your, your filth, not just of your clothing and body, but of your soul. Like you're getting ready for a very sacred encounter with a holy God and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up on the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and he washed, they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And so, which is kind of an interesting thing, that little last comment, do not go near a woman. That's where you want to start? It's just because I, everyone's like, wait, what? That yeah. felt like a left turn. Every other ancient culture that they're walking into, all the Canaanites of that region, when they had a worship service, do you know what it looked like? A lot of sex. A lot of sex. That's what they did. Sorry if you have kids. but And though they worshiped fertility gods, and the way that they worshiped was through orgies and craziness. And so God is saying, we do things quite a bit differently here. Um, this is going to be holy. I want your attention on me and so you need to consecrate yourself but there's also something here that our culture is very uneasy with the people are like yep we're in covenant great we can approach you they're they're just overflowing with confidence and god's like all right you tell them what this is going to be like mm-hmm. they can't approach me they can't even touch the mountain i'm coming to without dying and so god is immediately coming and saying you think you're worthy of me no like (laughs) i'm you touch the mountain where i'm on you will be destroyed and in our modern day like we don't like hearing that at all so then it gets to the description in verse 16 on the morning of the third day there were thunders And lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. So they went from, yep, we got it, no problem, to now when God comes and reveals just a sliver of who he is and his power and majesty, they're now trembling and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain and now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Like you are supposed to be reading this imagining like you would not want to be at the foot of the mountain. Hmm. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So you got to imagine all your senses are employed. You're looking up at this fire. You're you're seeing the smoke. The ground under your feet is shaking. The trumpet that you heard is just blasting. You can't hear the person next to you. Everything about this is absolutely overwhelming. You feel totally inadequate. You feel absolutely terrified that, that you bit off more than you can chew. Because here comes this God that's far bigger, more powerful, and more amazing than you ever dreamed. Mm. And he's told you don't come near me. You have no place on my mountain. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him and thunder. So it's, it's like, you know, the whispers or the normal conversations or walking in the cool of the day, like God comes and says, I'm going to answer you with thunderclaps. And the the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. How are you feeling about
1: this? I'm now thinking about the order of operations and all of this and it's fascinating and very gracious of God to be like, hey, I'm gonna give you like, I really want you to be my treasured possessions. Right? If you obey, you will be my treasured possessions. This is what I think about you. Now let me show you who I really am and who you really are just in a real moment. And so you can see how much greater it is that, I'm a treasured possession of this God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Better than being, you know, the object of his wrath for sure. Yeah. So you're like, Oh, if those are two options, wow, this is very kind because we are not alike. Mm -hmm. But,
0: but there's a a knee jerk reaction. Like, cause I was raised Catholic and so sorry for all of our Catholic listeners, but I'm going to talk about my experience. Like when I was growing up, the, the, the knee jerk reaction was God should be feared. And you'd you'd better just grovel and all that stuff. And by the way, there's something really, really healthy to that perspective. But what never came was the other side of, of course, yeah. when you're groveling, he comes to you and says, "I've done this for you,"
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? So. So it is kindness of God in this moment to come to the Israelites and make them realize the gravity of the God that they're dealing with. Yeah. You cannot come to me on your own. You can't possibly do this on your own. You can't even touch my mountain or you're gonna die. And so if you're at the foot of the mountain, what is your your only hope for having a relationship with this God is if he changes his countenance toward you because you'll never ever be worthy of this kind of power you'll never ever measure up you'll never be like well let me convince him or show him how lucky he is to have me on the team like he's doing this out of mercy to humble you enough to where you recognize my goodness i need mercy like you're so powerful you're so good you're so holy you're so majestic i don't belong even at the foot of this mountain please god please god have mercy on me because you are holy and we've lost that sense. You know, sometimes grace leads us to the far end of the other extreme to where we don't see God with any kind of fear or reverence mm-hmm. or holiness. And it's like, yeah, God's, you know, he's he's my homeboy, you know, like the T-shirt or whatever. No, like, come on, dude. Like, you are his treasured possession, but he is a fierce and holy God. And you don't just play with that or toy with it like he's something that's you can mock.
1: And in the end, he doesn't forget that. We have to remember that he pours that out on Jesus. That's exactly where this passage is leading you. Yeah, so it's not like, oh, God changed. It's like, no, like, imagine Sinai and Calvary. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. So I'm going to, where, where you're at, like, Hebrews 12 comes.
0: And the author of Hebrews is talking, the whole book of Hebrews is how Jesus is better than everything that you're going to see in the ministry of Moses, right? He's better than the angels. He's a better sacrifice. Once and for all time, the lamb has been slain. He's a better priest. He's a better temple. He's, he's once and for all. He fulfills all of those things. And so you come to chapter 12 of Hebrews after he's laid out how Jesus fulfilled all this stuff that God gave to Moses. And listen, listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter twelve, eighteen, because he's referencing Exodus 19 there. He says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. He's talking about this. To a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further words be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. And then verse 22, listen to the change. And then feel the gratitude that we don't come to that mountain anymore. Verse 22 says, but you have come to Mount Zion to heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, hint, hint, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so he's saying like Moses, God throws this wrench in the thing, the law. And it's like, if you don't measure up, then this is what's in store for you. And it's terrifying because you don't want to fall into the hands of a holy God if you're coming on your own merits. It's mm. not going to go well for you. Yeah. And so Hebrew says, thank the Lord you don't come to this mountain anymore. You come to a mountain that rather than screaming for obedience and holiness – That mountain has driven us to recognize our need of mercy and thank the Lord God gave it. Jesus came down to Jerusalem and went to a cross on another mountain that shook violently, another mountain where it was obscured and made dark and another mountain where, because he went on to that mountain and stepped into the holiness and the wrath of God, he was put to death so that everyone else can come on to that mountain and be in the presence of God. And rather than the blood of Abel, which cried out for what? Abel's blood cries out from the ground. It's calling for justice. Mm. Uh, Avenge me. Go get Cain, right? That's Abel's blood. It says the blood of Jesus speaks a better word, which is what? Mercy. Mercy. They absolutely deserve the mountain of fire. They deserve the quaking mountain. They deserve to be destroyed with the utter wrath of God. And yet Jesus spills his blood and that blood then atones for all of our sin, clothes us in righteousness, and then says, mercy to them. Give them mercy. And now we get to come to a mountain that's not shaking.
1: <laughs> that's amazing. That, that's pretty that's awesome. Least.
0: And so the Lord said to Moses, Moses, Go down and we're closing out. It's, we're still in the bad mountain, the heavy mountain, the, the mountain of God's wrath and holiness where the law is about to come. Which, by the way, the fact that the law comes to a mountain that's called desolate, the fact that the law comes to a mountain associated with thorns, Sinai, Sinek, what is the law to us? The law is a really wonderful thing, right? It's, it shows the design of God His goodness. We should all, out of gratitude, want to follow the law because it shows his wisdom. And yet, if we try to earn our salvation by the law, what is the law to us? Galatians tells us it is a curse every bit as much as the thorns because you will never keep it perfectly. You will never be worthy of God. You will never stand in his perfections and holiness and righteousness. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus fulfilled the law and all the impossibilities of your being perfect for you and gives you his perfections. It's, it's, a, it's really wonderful. So God says to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and, and look to look and many of them perish. So still at this point, some of them are thinking, let's go. Yeah, let's go. Let's go get a peek. And with that, it's like a warning kind of to the religious. That's like, Hey, You may think that you're worthy to come and take a peek on your own merits. Like, oh yeah, everybody but you. You're really good. God would be excited about you. Like, warn them. Nobody, not one, no one is capable of coming onto this mountain. Verse 22, also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. Even the holy ones the ones who consider themselves high and, and mighty and lofty in all their religiosity. Nope, you better, you better warn them too. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. And the next chapter, we get into the Ten Commandments. God, literally like verse two, God starts laying out the Ten Commandments in the next chapter. That's the setting when God is giving the law. Frightening, overwhelming, hitting all the senses. You're not worthy. You can't measure up. You touch the mountain and you die. I'm about to give you standards by which I'm gonna hold you accountable. Like everybody should have been going, Oh, is there can can we can we make another deal? <laughs> you know, is is there something else? Because this is pretty terrifying.
1: Yeah, to say the least. But it's meant to be. Mm, yeah, it's eye-opening. Right, like God doesn't give the
0: Ten Commandments. Like, oh my goodness, come on in. Like, this is great. I'm so glad that you're my people. You're gonna do well. You're gonna do great. Like, here's some commandments, and if you want, if you want, but it's recognizing like you're flawed.
1: Yeah,
0: this this is heavy. It's scary. It's dark. It's meant to be. And there's you know, I, I when you're standing in the presence of something that is overwhelming to you that is so much greater than you, it has the tendency to humble you. Mm. You know, they they'd been operating in their relationship with God through Moses all this time. And so it hadn't come super personal to them yet. But now God is saying, each and every one of you is not allowed on the mountain. You know, I've, I've escorted you out. I've taken care of you. I've given you bread. I've given you water. I, I, I defended you in battle. I, I led you through the sea. I gave all the plagues. I protected you from the plagues, at least the last seven of them. Like, I've done all this for you. So, yeah, I love you like crazy. I've called you out. I've called you my own. I have saved you and redeemed you and called you my own long before I ever gave you any expectations. But now that the expectations are coming, I want you to see you cannot earn me. Hmm. I, I, I called you before I ever gave you the law, but don't ever enter into a relationship with me thinking you can earn me. I want you to recognize that it is by grace alone and by mercy alone that you have a relationship with me. And that contrast, when you stand in front of the presence of God, it's every time you see someone in scripture that's confronted with the, the spiritual realm or the holiness of God, the reaction is always the same, get away from me, mm. right? It's Peter saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. It's the Israelites saying, get him away from us lest we all perish. It's Moses, you know, with God and God saying, you can't see my face and live, or it's John in Revelation that when he's confronted with the holiness of God, falls down on his face as though dead, we're told. It's Ezekiel. It's Isaiah. It's all the prophets that when they're confronted with the holiness of God, their instinct is, woe is me. I am undone for I'm a man of unclean lips. Like, And it's never, by the way, the response is never, oh, my gosh, you're so big. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness, you're so powerful. Oh, my goodness, you're so – it's always – I'm so deficient. Do mm. you ever notice that? Yeah. Like it's not amazing. Look at this. I feel so privileged to be here. This is wonderful. I'm really glad I'm here. It's I'm disgusting. Now, I remember Laura telling me that when she went to Wheaton, she went to Wheaton, she was from Alabama and she was in this tiny little huh, high school, tiny high school in Alabama, Camden, Alabama. And she was the valedictorian of a class of, like fifteen kids or something. Hey, don't.
1: All right, don't, well,
0: don't hate on that. I'm not hating on that. I, I think we put wonderful. a caveat
1: to our valedictorian.
0: Well, I mean, maybe. Uh. <laughs> I wasn't valedictorian, so I need all the help I can get. So, I mean, my class, I had six hundred plus. <laughs> so, I mean, if Obviously I was in, I not. was Camden, Alabama. Maybe I would have been valedictorian. <laughs> but anyway, I'm kidding. She's very, very smart. She's smarter than me. But anyway. When she went to Wheaton, she says that it was this shocking thing because when she was in Camden, she was the best piano player and she was the valedictorian and she was superlative in every sense. But then she goes to Wheaton and all of a sudden she's like below mediocre in the the talent pool of the worship team. And she felt like, I don't even know that I want to try because it's humiliating how inferior I am. And so like we do that with each other all the time, right? Oh my gosh, like I don't want to speak up because this guy's so much smarter than me. Or I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't even want to sing because listen to their voices. If I chip in, it's just gonna ruin everything. Or money or whatever reputation. We do that all the time where if somebody's superior to us, it makes us shrink into ourselves. Imagine taking that and putting it next to an infinitely holy God. And then naturally being like, oh my gosh, I am so unworthy to be standing or even remotely near the same location as this God. That is the right response. Mm. Yet this infinitely holy, righteous, powerful, omnipresent God looks at you and all of your unworthiness and sees you as so tremendously precious to him. That he calls you his treasured possession that he comes into this world and is willing to give up everything including his life so that you can come beyond the mountain with him mm. but the way to get there is to understand that you have no business with him on the mountain <laughs> that you stop trying to earn it that you accept the fact that you are inferior to god that you're deficient of his standards and that you recognize that you need his mercy because there's nothing you will ever do in your entire life that can be more pleasing to God than to say, I can't do it. I need you. Mm-hmm. That thrills the heart of God because you have a God who is so eager and so ready to take away all the smoke and the, <laughs> the trembling and, and everything else and to, to welcome you in because he came into this world and faced all that. In your place. Amen. But if you're trying to earn his favor by keeping the law alone, one day you're going to meet a holy God who is super powerful. And if you're coming standing on your own merits, you're going to meet a God that's going to be terrifying. We don't like to talk about that. No. But that's reality. So don't do that. Yeah, you don't have to. You really don't. You don't have to. You know, probably the most famous hymn that in the history of the church is Amazing Grace. And, and we go right past the lyrics, but I think this particular passage, which is meant to evoke the fear of the Lord, right? A reverence for his holiness. But there's the line in Amazing Grace where he says, uh, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And grace, my fears relieved. And what does that mean? That means that when God comes with the law and he makes you feel the need to cry out for mercy, to ask him for his grace, to to humbly say, I can't do this anymore. That's not a mean God. Hmm. It's grace that teaches your heart to fear, to bring you to the end of yourself where you stop striving and thinking you can earn his love. You'll never be worthy but when grace teaches your heart to fear, man, there's an even more abundant grace that comes right behind that to relieve those fears, to stand in the presence of God with all absolute confidence in his word that says, if you come to me and humble yourself and ask me for salvation, it's yours. Twas it grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, as we walk through Exodus 19. Next time, we'll be getting into the Ten Commandments, and there is so much good stuff. So like and subscribe the podcast. Share this episode if it meant anything to you. Uh, help us to, to build our numbers and to, to grow and to be a blessing to this world and to the kingdom of God. And we will join you again next week. God bless.